Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. Each week, we interview marketing leaders from companies old and new about how they build and evolve their brands on an unpredictable media and culture terrain. In addition to this full audio interview in podcast form, we also publish a companion newsletter with highlights from the Q&A. MediaPost has been covering marketing and media news for over 20 years. You can find the Brand Insider Weekly as well as our daily coverage at MediaPost.com. Now, let's get into it. You know, community has become such a throwaway phrase and just another checkbox for marketers that it is well to remember that the real roots of retail were at the local level, delivering necessary services to discrete communities and being deeply entwined in their economic health. The online retailer Fourth Avenue Market recalls exactly that dynamic. It's the largest Black-owned online beauty and hair care retailer in the U.S. It's grounded in a long tradition of Black-owned businesses not only serving their communities, but empowering them and working cooperatively to build one another's businesses. Salim Holder is the co-founder and CEO of Fourth Avenue Market. He came to the project after a career building brands for a number of familiar mainstream companies like Home International, Pernod Ricard, Prestige Brands, and Kimberly Clark. Welcome, Salim. Welcome back. You've been with us before. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great to be here, Steve. Good to see you. So I'm going to let you explain better than I can uh, what Fourth Avenue is, but both also, but both its spiritual roots and its current historic and its current and its current business model. Absolutely, absolutely. So Fourth Ave Market. I mean, we started Fourth Ave Market um, based on this idea where actually, I, if I take a step back, I actually purchased this this company. It was a lady I'd know. She was a sales broker, and her job as a sales broker, she created a platform of products, ethnic and multicultural products for hair, personal care products. I thought it was a really good idea, intriguing and intriguing idea. And when I went and spoke to her, she's like, listen, I don't really know the community as well. I really know technology and marketing, but I had these relationships. And at the end of the day, she really just wanted to retire, but thought it was a strong space to go into. As I spoke to her about it, and I, we, I talked to a partner of mine, we bought the company off of her hands. But as I did my diligence, I actually was able to understand based on the, the the data that existed and then reflecting on my own personal experience that I realized that I was walking into this white space that that honestly probably shouldn't still exist, but this white space that existed and that there was this consumer, this set of consumers that's out there, this community of consumers who were spending quite a bit of money, but were really I guess, disappointed to say the least in the retail experience, the shopping experience, where they had to go to find products. A lot of times they were choosing between a retail environment that had a little four foot section called the ethnic set that typically had only a few products from major mainstream brands and huge companies. And a lot of times it wasn't the product selection that fit their needs. And so they would leave the shelves that, that didn't have the products they want and go to stores that had the products that they wanted, but saw this interesting dynamic that a lot of times felt like they weren't wanted in the store. Mm. And so that that the, the overall shopping experience became a real concern and a point of emotional tension for this consumer that was spending upwards of $2 billion a year on these products. And that represented 85% of sales of ethnic and hair care and multicultural products yet only 7% of store ownership. So what we recognized was a huge opportunity to create a platform that would, number one, consolidate the number of products that are out there that are targeting this consumer. And these are products, whether it's larger companies or smaller companies, that was one. And number two, to drive creator accessibility and access to products that are created by members of the community that are higher quality or great quality products for the needs of the consumer. 
And then finally, to be able to really reinvest back into that same community as we spend money and, and programs that reinvest back into the community. And, and that really became the essence of 4th Ave Market. We're going to, I think we're going to touch on each one of those points. I want to make sure everybody understands what the, what the roots of the, of the name are. Ah, yes. Uh, yeah. where, where, because it represents, I think, a great deal about the model going forward. Absolutely. You're really getting your inspiration from uh, an historic model. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, when we thought about the values that we wanted our, our platform to represent and the idea of reinvesting back into the communities that are spending money with us, it made us think about Black Wall Street. And Black Wall Street, many know Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but many don't realize that there were a number of other pockets of Black Wall Streets around the country from Little Haiti in Durham, North Carolina to Fourth Avenue District in Birmingham, Alabama. And at the time, 60% of all Black-owned business in Birmingham was done right in this little district. And you've you've seen it, uh, the, the, the iconic civil rights footage of the kids getting laid out with the fire hoses or attacked by the, the police dogs. That was happening right in the center of 4th Ave District. And so when we thought about it, we said, how can we pay homage back to this time and do it in a way that's really about the values that we represent? And I would say that while we're targeting and speaking to this consumer, the products on our platform are not exclusive to the Black community. They're products that we have for everybody. We just simply said we can prioritize the needs of this community in a way that most of the retailers hadn't been doing at a time. And at a point where consumers had expressed this strong point of tension that really existed, and it really came to the forefront nationally in 2020, you know, after George Floyd and everything else, it became a little bit more top of mind for many, but it's been a challenge for these consumers for a while. But but one of the aspects of this model that goes back to the, its historic roots is that a lot and, and goes back to your your original point is that this is a constituency that was not being served, especially by main by mainstream retail outlets. So but it was still being served, but by different sources. Right. I, I, I recall that there is that these products aimed at uh, especially hair and beauty products. Mm -hmm. aimed at the specific needs of of a of a black consumer they actually were this was being filled all along but from a very different source right which you've actually tapped into for this business yeah you know what's crazy is that this you know this has evolved over time where as an industry I and mean, we know madam cj walker right from as an industry madam cj walker was one of the first black millionaires um first women millionaires period in america and it came from hair and beauty care and personal care products so that industry for a while it actually did exist within the black community as we made money off of the products that we created and the products we used over time, the ownership of that industry transitioned out of the hands of the Black community into other communities' hands. And unfortunately, it hadn't been, again, reflecting a great experience. It's not necessarily delivering on the needs of that consumer base. And a lot of money that's spent is just simply invested in other communities. And so this community was saying for so long, it's like, listen, I don't really care who owns the store. I just want to buy what I want to get. Right. And when you have to choose between stores that don't have what you want and stores that you're not going to have a good shopping experience, it leaves a lot more um, for, for people's, you know, to, to satisfy their needs. So and there that, actually have been producers. Absolutely. Satisfying these needs. They tended to be very locally based, smaller yes. businesses. And one of the things that your platform does is it aggregates a lot of these smaller businesses that were serving their local communities yes. very often by mom and pop um, storefronts. Definitely. And you actually are, have aggregated and now are empowering them in a yep. new way with your yep. platform. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, because to your point, it's consumers, they want to get their hair done or their skin. They're not going to sit and wait if they can't find it. Then what they've done is, and this is how a lot of brands are created. They created it themselves in their own kitchen and they come up with products. And then everybody in the community is like, wow, this works good. And then the barbers and stylists are sharing it. And that's how you have brands that get right. connected through our community. So I, to your point, giving them a platform that they can have great more, more exposure. Now, before we leave the, this um, this topic of retail, I do want to touch on retail experience. Now, that, again, is another watchword that I think at this summit we've probably been hearing for the last few days. Retail, everybody is focused on the retail experience. But one of the ways of looking at the retail experience is uh, from a minority perspective, and especially the ways in which Black consumers look at and regard the retail experience. And I think because as we talk about it and we talk about the focus on retail experience, diversity and a broad client and appealing to a broader clientele is really one of the topics that doesn't often come up. So I wish you would speak to your perspective on this and what you could tell this audience and give insight to, to our audience about that aspect of retail experience. Yeah, you know what? I think at the end of the day, you know, I've worked in a number of brands. And as I worked on a number of those brands and we try to figure out where can we unlock the most growth, a lot of times there's a heavy concentration of business and focus in a certain area. And there tends to be other areas that we look at as kind of white space or areas of opportunity for much more significant growth. And I think the challenge that had existed for so long is People, perhaps they didn't know the community as well or didn't think about the community as much. But I know it's not, it, it had, at the end of the day, um, a lot of the the, the retailers, um, I'm a mind went blank for a second, <laughs> sorry. Um, at the end of the day, I think that a lot of the consumers, they want to shop in a place that that aligns with their values, right? That's, that's number one. They want to shop in a place that aligns with their values. Um, Steve, I lost my my thought. What was your question again? Well, about the retail experience, and I think part of the challenge has been, especially in recent years, is that a lot of major retailers have different policies geographically. Yes, and, they, and that, yes. that really yes. become very unwelcoming for yes. in particular yes. communities yep. that show that show almost a hostility towards the community rather than being in sync yep. with the community. And and I th think to that point, you know, one of the things that I I used to be frustrated about was when I'd look at certain retail environments and I'd see, you know, as I manage a number of different brands. I manage like the denture category, for example, the denture adhesives. And a lot of times I'd, I'm looking in the store and it's like 20 feet of space of like denture adhesives. But you have this category that's like a $300 million category nationally that's been declining for 10, 12 years straight. And then you have this other category that's a billion dollar category, the fastest growing segment of the entire hair care category. But then it's relegated to little four foot section of the shelf. And I realize different buyers and, you know, the way that it's managed is different, but just taking a step back from a consumer who doesn't know that they just mm -hmm. look at it and say, wait a minute, you got all this space for these dentures and you have no space for the hair care products. And that can come off in a way that says we're not really thinking about your needs mm -hmm. and and in a way that says, uh, but at the end of the day, I do think that this is a a dollars and cents kind of conversation for us as retailers. We're here to make money. We're here to sell products. And I believe that more authentically connecting with this consumer base, understanding their needs a little bit better can absolutely drive much greater traffic, greater loyalty to the brand um, and can enhance the overall retail retail's position, which is why we went down the path. What are let's let's move move into talking about the growth of your own brand. Um, yes. 
and how you built it. What have been the marketing channels that have been most effective um, in growing both traffic and the business? Definitely. So, you know, of course, we've done some performance marketing through some paid ads, paid search ads, paid social media ads, and they've been great at driving traffic and driving awareness. The partnerships, the community-based conversations, the uh, or, or partnerships where we've been able to set up affiliate relationships, those, those have by far and by far have helped us to drive a significant amount of growth. See, one thing I've mentioned, even at the previous events that I've been here, and the insight that really I was able to tap into is understanding that every single community has a community ecosystem, an information ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I understood that about the Black community, and the Black community, it evolved differently just simply because of historic and heritage reasons about how the community has evolved over time. And as a result, I recognize that the barbershop and the salon and then the HBCU and then the churches or the mosque and then community organizations, those four entities, by me connecting directly with those entities, I didn't need to spend money on paid ads. I had to go and connect with them to see how it can be an equal exchange of value that mm -hmm. when they help promote me, it wasn't just here's a coupon, but here's actually education now that can help you get on your feet and make make income or here's another partnership so by me going down that path that has by far been much more successful than the paid ad the paid ads have helpful but mm -hmm. by far it has been those relationships in the community and that ecosystem we're gonna i want to we're gonna drill into that part in a second especially your, your partnerships with with local communities and the hbcs um what have been the most effective marketing approaches to retaining customers and increasing the ltv once yep. you once you get them what's what's been what have been some of the most important tactics on the on those lines yeah you know we've done some fundamental loyalty programs and i'm there's probably some retailers here that i could probably learn from with the loyalty programs to be quite honest um but when it comes down to loyalty programs and just incentives to get them back the the also the part of just having the right selection having such a large selection of products as they've been established and understanding that that's brought them back from a functional perspective but again, I think the reality is that I recognize that this consumer cares about brands that are aligned with their values and that this consumer is willing to change where they spend their money. They're willing to stop spending money with retailers or businesses that are not aligned with their values and they're willing to spend money with those that are. And so I took the bet since I can't really compete on price at this point with Amazons or other retailers, um, I took the bet that if I could add value to them and to their community, they would continue to come back. And so I've continued to send email newsletters and other communications that highlights, here's all the amazing things that 4th Ave Market is doing in the community, things that they care about. And as a result, that has, we've heard from consumers who got those emails and they're like, wow, we really love what you're doing. And then you see their name come up in the list of orders over the next week or so. So making that connection has really been phenomenal for us. So that begs the question about how is your business experienced the return to brick and mortar? Um, yeah. And how, how has that changed the way in which you're, you're talking to your customers? Are you seeing a flight back into brick and mortar? And has that been a challenge for you? Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's been some ups and downs with this pandemic. The Like when the pandemic happened for a minute, we couldn't ship out. And then it was great because everybody's buying online and we could ship out and life was great. 
And then to your point, it was like everybody said, oh, well, actually, I could still go down to the store down the street. I don't have to wait a day or two for you to ship the stuff. So it has forced us to do things a little bit different still. We've still been able to retain a good amount of those customers, but I be albeit through a smaller percent of their overall purchases. Now some more of their purchases can still go to that on, on uh, that retail environment. And so again, what we've started to do was we start to figure out ways that we can enhance the value that we're offering to consumers to make their ability to choose or their um their the process of choosing and selecting the right product way more seamless and easy for them. And we've incorporated some of these things into our we got a proprietary hair quiz now and the output scientifically proven products that work for them. They don't have to shop in a store. They get it, get it consistently delivered. So we've tried to figure out how can we enhance the value that we offer given we have so many brands on the platform mm -hmm. and work with those brands to try to figure out ways we can keep them out of the store and into our uh, into our platform for now. <laughs> so let, let's drill into one of the more interesting programs that you have at Community Outreach, and that's your your partnerships with historically black colleges, because this is a this is an idea that I think is really worth talking about uh, mm -hmm. because you're coming at it in a different way. You're not simply hunting for social influencers right. um, and you're uh, but you're doing something much richer than that. And I'll just yep. let you tell this story Definitely. because I think Definitely. it's interesting. Yeah, you know, for me, um, again, going back to that ecosystem and understanding how the information ecosystem works in a community and me wanting to plug into that system and going back to our values of there being an equal exchange of value. And so I recognize that at that emotional tension that's felt is that there's often is not an equal exchange of value through retailers or brands that want to partner. And this is what HBCUs or anybody in general is typically like things that sell, buy my product, promote my product, and here's a discount so you can buy some more of my product later. Mm -hmm. What I looked at now was how can we create an equal exchange of value through specifically thinking about historically black colleges and universities and those students that are there. And what I recognize is, number one, as a startup, I don't have a ton of fun to pay a, a, a heck of a lot of people. And so as I look for talent, I start to think about what kind of talent programs can I put in place that I can actually get people that can work on the platform. But again, that's what's in it for me, what's in it for them. And so as I looked at where one place I can go, was historically black colleges and universities because as I spoke to many companies and worked at companies, a lot of some companies don't know what a historically black college or university is, let alone being able to tap into the tremendous amount of talent that exists there. And a lot of these students don't have the network to be able to get into a lot of these bigger companies. So it's not that the companies don't want them or they don't want to be at the companies. It's like, how can there be an intermediary that can help serve as a connection? Mm -hmm. And then more importantly, when you get the skills and the experience, when you get the skills, you still need experience to do it. And what I thought about is we have this e-commerce platform, this live e-commerce platform. So what I've done is created a program with five different HBCUs. Students will get college credit for working with us for a semester, for a quarter. And what I'll do is I will literally teach them some of the skills required for digital marketing. So I'm a digital marketing instructor. So I take those skills. They learn email, paid search, paid ads, et cetera. And they will literally run ads on the platform. So now they learn how to do it and can now have experience doing it. When they go on that job interview, they can say, I didn't just learn how to do ads. I ran the ads and this was the result. Even if it wasn't a good result, they can say this was the result. But now I know what I would have done different um, the next time. And so that's two parts. The third part is connecting with different corporations, companies that are trying to build this talent pipeline 
and to partner with them in the development of the curriculum and to partner with them even when it comes to their products. So we've worked with a couple brands who have products they sell on the Fourth App platform. And we've connected students with those brands. They serve as almost like a brand manager for that quarter that they're working with. So that semester, they learn marketing, they promote the brand, they put a little money behind supporting the brand, and they're able to build their network as well. And this has been a tremendous program where, again, that equal exchange of value happens at each point from the corporation that wants to build their talent pipeline to the student looking to get experience to the college having better programs that are hands-on, giving richer experience. And then for Fourth Ave, of course, one, getting ads on the platform sold and having work on the platform. So again, it kind of goes all around. Um, what's the, what are the metrics you use? What what uh, what data and analytics do you apply against this program to know that it's working and how it's working and where where if at all you need to optimize it? Definitely. Well, we definitely need to optimize as we're continuing to grow and evolve the program. So it's definitely not a perfect thing so far. Um, but a few things that we've looked at. Number one, I have looked at at the end of the day, we we have an you know an NPS score. So at the end of the the class, I want to know for the students' perspective. Did they appreciate? Did they learn? What did they what experience did they get? Second, we're looking at metrics from their campaign. So is their campaign, is it successful or not? Because that goes towards the curriculum, that goes towards the instructor, that goes towards uh, did they retain the information? And then also the other part that I think is really important, and this is harder for me to gauge, but it was the level of participation of some of these different corporate partners that want to partner and whether that's in a financial investment or whether it's a time investment to help us to develop the curriculum that really works. Um, and, and then finally, at the end of the day, the, the, the last and probably most, I can't say the most important, but one of the really important things is the resident or the students after they participate, how many of them are going into internships with partner companies or similar companies? How many of them are getting jobs afterwards? So as sales on a platform, there's how many of them are successfully completing. And then we look at the curriculum and say, how effective is the curriculum in itself? And how is it and how are you tracking its impact on your own brand and business? Yeah. So for me, I'm absolutely seeing an increase in just traffic from the schools that the that the students are at. They're sending more people because they're talking about it. They're promoting it on their campus. That's part of their role is to help drive sales on each of those campuses. So I will certainly see an, a lift on some of those campuses. And of course, you see some campuses, it's like, wow. And then other campuses is like, oh, we need some help there, right? But at the same time, again, that's a key metric to be able to look at and, and to see how well it's working. And then from a brand perspective, you know, as I have these partnerships with HBCUs and we partner with others from a brand perspective, this is probably more qualitative than anything, but it's elevating how people see us as a brand. And it's not letting people just see us as a retail store that's just transactional, but they see us as a community partner, a social enterprise. And so when I hear that type of communication articulated back to us, not just like, hey, they're a store, it's more like we're a community organization. That helps me to know we're going in the right direction in terms of how I want to be seen and, and, and remembered in the minds of others. Uh, you ended on exactly the note that I would end on in, in, in that the real learning here is that uh, both relationship with influencers and with community is not transa purely transactional. Yes. It has to be deeper than simply transactional. It Absolutely. can't be a coupon. It has to define value yeah. as something more than just the exchange. 
but yeah. but something much deeper. And in your case, it's really empowering um, yes. the consumer yeah. and the influencer in, in in interesting ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Salim Holder, as always, this is this is fascinating stuff. I hope you come back and report on how it's how it's performing next year. Definitely, definitely. Well, like I said, I always appreciate the opportunity, Steve, and I look forward to connect again. All right, thanks, Salim. Thank you. Thanks for hitting play on Media Post's Brand Insider Podcast. We're here each week interviewing marketing executives from large and small, legacy and emerging brands. They share their experiences navigating the challenges of commercial clutter, media distraction, and consumer disinterest. You can also subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter for edited text editions of these Q&As. For this and all of the marketing and media news reporting Media Post has provided the industry for two decades, head over to MediaPost.com. And if you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions for Brand Insider, you can always reach me, Steve Smith, at steve at mediapost.com. Until next week, let's market carefully out there.